Warning. If you think about it, soldiers really should have some sort of democratic say over the wars they're fighting in, or at least like some say over their own working conditions, or at least some say whether or not they're a soldier in the first place. Like if you wanted to be ethical about it, you definitely need to do at least those things. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Military Obedience Podcast ship. You're all our crew at sea. We're doing a podcast today on the subject of dutifully following orders without prejudice. I'm your captain, Lieutenant Finkus. And my name is also Captain Finkus. No relation. We're both named after a famous military captain. So that explains that. Today's podcast you'll be making under our direct instruction and orders will be about the benefits of order and obeying orders and respecting and loving the queen herself, Elizabeth. Now, folks, anytime you walk by the portrait of the queen on the wall there, you are expected to take off your hat. Keeping a piece of fabric on your head when you walk by a portrait of a woman that you've never met, that is unethical. Remember out there today, making a podcast is not fun. We're not here to laugh. We are here to make a serious military podcast about the naturalness and objective good of hierarchy. Yep. And if any of you scumbags thinks that you're going to be a smart ass and cause any trouble for us, well, we've got a lot of experience shutting down, intimidating and breaking people who show any spontaneity, egalitarian values. Don't try to be a hero out there tonight. All right. We're just good, clean cast. And if anyone violates that, we will pluck the weeds from this monocrop faster than you can say, I'm sorry, Madam Queen. Now. Mutiny. Oh my God, I, my blood is pumping through my body. That was like Ooh. the most intense experience of my life. <laughs> you read about mutinies in books all day and then you do it and it's wow thank you yeah. so much everyone that was the most successful and smooth mutiny against an unjust leader in a military ship context i've ever seen when i woke up this morning i had no idea that today we would set out to save some souls and maybe save our own but i think that's exactly what we did today with this mutiny Oh, and when they were talking about this awful, unethical podcast they wanted to create, I had this nod in my belly just knowing that we'd done a sort of criminal conspiracy together to overthrow them, that we were waiting for the right moment. I was so nervous. Whew, okay, let's be professional. Hey, folks, my name's Sean. My name's Aaron. And this is the Seriously Wrong podcast now because it was a successful mutiny. And today we're doing an episode on mutinies. I mean, it's a great topic to choose right now because we lived it. It's one of those things that's just a coincidence. Now, unlike us, our guest today has never been involved in a mutiny, but he's done a lot of studying about mutinies. His name is John, and he does the Working Class History podcast. Yeah, it's an awesome interview and discussion today, a completely fascinating and mind-blowing topic. Before we get started, I think all of us mutineers who are now convicts... Against the Queen, too. That's who I kept picturing the whole time. That bad podcast they wanted us to make, the Queen would love it, and I knew that she would hate this podcast. Yeah, just the thought of the Queen shaking her head, tisk-tisking. I think that's going to cause problems with morale, unless maybe we can play the people's anthem over the loudspeakers and make sure that everyone's primed and ready to go. Talk about mutinies with John from Working Class History. Oh yeah, absolutely. They'll forget all about any anthems that the Queen has written after they hear the people's anthem. Or not that she wrote them, but they were written for her countries or whatever. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes, for her many countries. <laughs> it's a strange thing to say about a human being. Is that audio set up? Are we going to play the anthem? 
Come on now, what is this mutiny? I'm just saying, folks, what's the deal with having a queen at all? Well, she, by divine right, her family gets to own a bunch of property and be the face that's on the money? At least in Canada, I mean, lots of places around the world, actually, like dozens of countries, face on the money, people from a certain property-owning bloodline? Creepy stuff, definitely creepy. Okay, now the, the audio guys are waiting on us now. They're ready, and we're still talking. Oh, boy. I'm sorry, guys, just think about the queen thing. What the fuck? Let's play the people's anthem. I'm sorry. I got a little carried away. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I'm Sean. My name is Aaron. I'm John from the Working Class History Podcast. And today we are talking about mutinies, when a group of people rise up against the captain of a ship or rise up against the commander of a unit of soldiers. Mutiny is this anti-authoritarian. <laughs> it's anti-authoritarianism really put into the verb form you know the act of anti-authoritarianism one of the most extreme versions is mutiny yeah when i first started i was just kind of reading the emails between you two about this topic i was like oh mutinies that's so interesting i've never really thought about mutinies very much i think there's something about like the military nature of it and like I don't go for that kind of thing generally, but just thinking about what a mutiny is and what it represents and like what you have to do to do that, you're in this very intense situation already, like you're going to be in a war or some command and control hierarchy. And then you have to, with force, take over or disobey. It's a peak intensity situation. Yeah, I think that's right, because in a lot of ways, a mutiny is like a worker's strike. But because it's in the military, everything is more kind of intense anyway. But also any kind of refusal to obey orders or any rebellion, strike, anything like that is also a crime. So it's not just a civil thing like normal wage workers. It's a crime. And often it's a really serious crime, even punishable by things like long jail time or even death. Yeah, it struck me the definition on Wikipedia is mutiny is a criminal conspiracy among a group of people to openly oppose, change, or overthrow a lawful authority to which they are subject. It's just, <laughs> I don't know if the neutral voice is coming through on that one. <laughs> no, it's a really, really high stakes thing. Because yeah, I was reading about one of the more recent examples of something like a mutiny from some of the links that you had passed on to us, John. And I think it was 2004 in the Iraq war, there was a group of soldiers who chose to not go on a mission to deliver helicopter fuel. If it was interpreted as a mutiny, I was shocked to find it would have been technically punishable by up to death. And the idea that someone would like, a worker says, I'm going to refuse unsafe work conditions but you place that within the context of the military and soldiers and it becomes 
something that's treated on the level as treasonous behavior that could be executable. Although I think in that specific case, they didn't treat it as a mutiny in a legal sense, partially because of like public relation concerns and stuff like that. They had said that soldiers had raised concerns which were going to be addressed and stuff, and they faced another type of penalty. It's all more or less confidential because of the way that the military court system works. And this is like another thing is like the military has its own legal and court system, which functions in a parallel and isn't accountable to us on the outside of it to like share information about what happens the fact that exists is crazy but like the specifics of the case we don't know actually which mutineers what ended up happening to them in this case of the 2004 refusal some of them were transferred but we don't know like to what degree people were demoted and stuff like that because of the opacity of these organizations yeah and so that kind of case is an example of it being so high stakes actually ended up being of benefit in a way because the u.s government at the time didn't want to admit that there'd been a mutiny. And often you do see this in conflicts where governments, or even lower than governments, the military brass, the officers, don't want to admit they've had a mutiny because it makes them look really bad. Yeah. And for you, John, what attracted you to the topic of mutinies as like an area of study? I think the first time I really thought about or heard about mutinies was reading about the Vietnam War and what became a widespread disaffection amongst GIs. And we're going to talk more about Vietnam specifically a bit later. But the topic I found really interesting, especially for those of us who either a bit lefty or I think if you're interested in ordinary people getting a better deal in the world, then mutinies are important because they're a way that the rank and file in whatever branch, the military or navy or whatever, can assert themselves and their interests if they don't want to go on a dangerous mission and get killed. And sort of beyond that, for those of us who want to get rid of capitalism, mutinies are vitally important because ultimately the power of the state is brute force. You know, there are things like the police, the courts, the prisons, and all that there to protect the state and the property of the wealthy few from the rest of us, the working class, if we were united. But those things on their own aren't sufficient to protect their wealth if we were all together. That's why ultimately it does come down to governments control the military, which do have enough violent power to assert themselves over a very large number of people, potentially, given it. And so militaries, especially, you know, in the US are extremely powerful potentially, but at the same time, they're completely reliant on their rank and file, following their orders, being obedient, doing what they're told. And so that potentially is its weakness, much in the same way that like the capitalist economy relies on us being obedient and going to work every day and doing what we're told. So I think it's interesting to look at those examples when people haven't done what they've been ordered to do. And in those times, there's the real prospect for, I think, radical change and radical transformation of individuals and also of wider society. Yeah, the way that mutinies are often punishable by death in the military, it's such a vulgar, crude, authoritarian. Like when people talk about authoritarianism, I mean, that's the most authoritarian thing imaginable to kill someone who defies orders or like tries to overturn a power structure within this limited context within the military. And I think maybe part of the reason that it would be punishable by death above other things is because of the obvious immense power of military power. The ability to use violence to enforce things is like fundamental to the way that the state operates. So there's a very, very strict punishment. And the thing is that because mutinies are defined as conspiracies, it means that it's illegal to organize the soldiers. Mm, yeah, I think. And there's just something like so attractive about good everyday people standing up against 
this much more powerful enemy. Like the David and Goliath aspect of this, I think, is another thing that makes it so powerful because to stand up for what's right is hard enough when you're not in the military, when you're just living an everyday normal life in the world as it is, when you're not being threatened with immediate execution for doing what you think is right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's true. But looking at it from another side, it's also in a way surprising there aren't more mutinies. Because if you think about how you feel about your own life and your own continued existence, your own feeling of self-preservation. Let's just say it's a powerful urge. And that is something that military authorities have always sort of struggled with, how to override that in people. Because if you're in the army, you know, you have to try and put your own self-preservation behind you and do whatever you do for your country or whatever. And that's the reason why the penalties are so high. Because a mutiny, you might avoid possible death, but that's why the punishment has to be certain. And the punishments do have to be so severe because they have to override your wanting to stay alive. Yeah. The logic of a top-down massive military organization like that, it actually can't function without obeying orders at all levels at all times. Like it operates from the assumption and, and necessity that that continues to happen. If mutinies were a more regular thing, the whole thing would fall apart. So they have to do everything they possibly can to stop them if they want the thing that they are to keep existing, this military organization. In preparation for this episode, the first thing that came to mind to me was pirates and pirate mutinies. The word mutiny was caught up in the word cloud along with peg legs and hooks and treasure maps and stuff like that. So I tried to look up about pirate mutinies and what the deal is with pirates and mutinies. I was reminded of something really interesting, which is that Pirates during the sort of golden age of piracy in 1710 to 1730 sort of 30 era, they had a type of mutiny insurance, which was democratizing the ship to a certain degree, like having elected captains and having elected people and elected roles and stuff like that is a way of preventing mutinies. And also that many examples of people who became pirates was because they conspired to take over a ship, have a mutiny on it, and then use that ship as their pirate ship. <laughs> and the other thing that I learned was that the punishment for an attempted mutiny that didn't work and a punishment for the captain of an attempted mutiny that did work were both often the same thing, which was marooning when you leave someone on a deserted island. So this is what I've learned about pirates and mutiny. And so I got all the pirate stuff out of my system. <laughs> yeah, no, but that is a big part of the history of mutinies and yeah, them often rebelling. And I mean, if you think about it, that is the easiest way to get a pirate ship if you want to be a pirate. It's just like nick the one that you're on and then change the flag and then boom, pirate ship. Yeah, you're already going to be a pirate. So are you that concerned with... <laughs> like doing things legally. Another great reason to be harsh about mutineers, I mean, from the authoritarian perspective, a successful mutiny could mean a roving band of soldiers of some kind. And a roving band of soldiers is a very dangerous thing for, I mean, both authorities and it could also be, in the sense of pirates, very dangerous for like civilian people who get plundered by these sort of things. And oh, that just reminds me of when it comes to the 2004 mutiny and how like America doesn't want to be seen as having mutinies because it could undermine faith in the mission in the Middle East. If people started being like, oh, why do soldiers not like this mission? Why are they rebelling against their authorities and stuff? Is that the privatization of the military effectively is impacting our capacity 
which was already very limited, even in a theoretical sense, to have the decency of hardworking, normal people who just happen to be soldiers to go against orders which are unjust by having these like specialized private for-profit military units, it stops the potential of these random 20-year-olds who get sucked up into the military somehow who are like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this mission. And that dynamic caught my imagination a bit too, that if there was ever a golden age of rebellion in the military, we're surely past it. Yeah, I think it would be harder nowadays. Yeah, well, definitely. But I think also looking at history from the other end, you can see how mutinies and resistance and rebellion within the military itself has forced governments to change the way that they pursue war. We now go to a father and son preparing for the talk. Son. Hey, hey, Dad. How, uh, Have you tidied your room? Yeah, it's all in the right place, and I'm ready to go play, do, oh, do kids well, stuff. Before you do that, I think it's time that we have the talk. Oh, geez. The talk? Am I really old enough? It's time. We had the talk about the government. We, we, we love the government, don't we, Dad? Well, son, we're not what you'd call rich, so the government's not really ours. Oh, oh, but the government has a big military. Don't they use it to protect us? Well, they use it to protect something, but it's not really us. Why don't you take a Oh, geez. So, have you heard of Adam Smith? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's the inventor of capitalism. Not exactly, but close enough. He's economist, philosopher, and he's known as the father of capitalism. He explained what government was pretty simply. He said, law and governments may be considered in this and indeed every case as a combination of the rich to oppress the poor and to preserve themselves the inequality of the goods, which would otherwise soon be destroyed by the attacks of the poor who if not hindered by the government, would soon reduce the others to inequality with themselves by open violence. Now, that's the end of the quote. Do you see what he means by that? Well, gosh, Adam Smith is saying that the government exists as a way for the rich to bludgeon the poor into maintaining social relations that don't serve them? Basically, yes. We have a world where many people don't have enough even to get by, whereas some people are so fabulously rich that they couldn't spend their money in a lifetime. And the only way that situation is sustainable is if the rich have a body of violence to protect them, the government. And crucially, the biggest violent part of that is the military. Is he saying that's a good thing? Like, I don't know enough about Adam Smith. Is he on the side of the poor there or on the side of the rich? Yeah, I mean, Adam Smith supported capitalism in the state of affairs, and he was supportive of free market capitalism. But he did believe that government did have a place in capitalist society. But it's important to say that he was honest about it. Many advocates of capitalism or government as they are, are either not honest about it now or they've been fooled by their own ideology. So you're telling me as a child going into adolescence, if the government is faced between an option of protecting the riches and inequality and the property of the very wealthy and protecting the basic needs of people who just happen to be on the poorer side of the equation that the, the state nine times out of ten or more is always going to pick to protect property instead of protecting the people? Bingo. I'm too young to take the bread pill, Dad. These claims are too extraordinary. I've been listening to Radio Free Wrongtown my whole life. I've been watching Hollywood movies. That's an incredible claim. I need some evidence. Okay, let's start off with a question for you. You know Mr. Byersworth, my boss. Yeah. If I have an issue with my boss, then should the military get involved in that? I don't think so. Why would a, if there was a 
disagreement between a boss and a worker, why would the military be involved? They're supposed to protect our freedoms. Well, exactly. But in many occasions, when workers have asked their employers for better conditions and have then gone on strike to try and get them, the army has been sent in to kill large numbers of them. So this has happened countless times through history. Just to pick one example, off the top of my head, in Ludlow, Colorado in 1914, mine workers went on strike wanting to be paid in money instead of company scrip. Company scrip, is that when a company issues its own sort of like internal currency for their workers? Yeah, it's tokens that can only be used at the company store instead of actual money that you can spend anywhere. So the National Guard came in and slaughtered dozens of people. Slaughtered? Yeah, they machine gun miners and their families and then burned their tents, killing their wives and children. Uh, That's so screwed up. If the government needs to kill a striking worker, I mean, they can take them to trial, right, Dad? And they can find them guilty of something and then execute them humanely. Then, Ah, uh, you have much to learn. And that was just one example of does well, hunt thousands of times has happened around the world. And it's not like this is in the distant past. Even in 1960s, the National Guard was called out literally hundreds of times to suppress mostly African-American people demonstrating for their rights. And in 1970, truck drivers, Teamsters went on strike for better pay. And then the National Guard was called out against them as well. So this is an ongoing situation. Okay, Dad. Well, I need to go because of something Fortnite-related. You young people. But just so I can really chew on it and think about it and, and in the process sort of make that transition into adulthood in a way. My understanding of the dominant role of the military up until now has been to play a defensive role in stopping foreign invasions of our country, malicious foreign invasions, people wanting to go to war with us. But now you're saying that it's also been used domestically to protect power structure against grassroots disruptions from everyday people like us. What's the sort of ratio there? Just for me to chew on it while I'm gaming and drinking my dew with the boys, like how many times was the military used in domestic ways that I wouldn't approve of versus how many times did the military prevent our country from being invaded? Well, son, that's a very specific question. So how about you go and have a bit of a Google? You're Canadian, right? Yes, I am, Dad. Yes, I remember. Take after my mother that way. You go and Google how many times Canadian military force has been used against a foreign invader as opposed to, say, how many times it's been used against First Nations activists or workers, or something like that, and then you can report back. Okay, Dad, thanks. I'll do my own research. (laughs) Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Company Scrip Coming Back. Hi, my name's Jeff Bezos, and I'm the head of Amazon. And I want to tell you a little bit of history us at the Amazon Labs have dug up to bring back. Mine workers in the United States didn't used to be paid in annoying, difficult money. They used to get company scrip, beautiful little tokens that they could redeem in the company store for all their company needs. Food, drink, what else do you need? Our tech wizard geniuses at Amazon Labs, we're proud to announce that any Amazon employee who's willing to switch from getting paid in dirty, useless cash to cold, hard company script will get a $2 per hour raise or $3 redeemable in digital items, like a subscription to our audiobook library or access to our web services or visiting Whole Foods and getting a digital download kale recipe book. Amazon script is good anywhere that I own. Want a subscription to Washington Post? That's a digital subscription cost. And we've got a new innovation pushing new frontiers as usual. I have here our head scientist ready to announce a major innovation that has ramifications for the whole economy. I'll just hand it off to him. Hi. 
Are you an employer sick of having to spend your hard-earned money paying your lazy, feckless, sometimes ill employees? I know I am. There's got to be a solution that meets my small to medium business needs. Well, worry no more. There is. Instead of wages, just pay your employees in Amazon Company Script. That means you can afford to pay your employees more for less. And for governments, we have a very special deal. We're piloting a program where workers laid off because of the COVID-19 crisis are given a free subscription to Amazon Prime streaming video for only eight hours of work in the Mechanical Turk per day. Where they can work on their skills, such as completing surveys. Only eight hours work for 16 hours of streaming pleasure. You've heard of convict leasing? This is better because they're not convicts and you don't even have to pay. So this May Day, gather around the Mechanical Turk with your unemployed family and watch video that's infinitely reproducible and costs us a fraction of a cent to send to your home. This is what the Haymarket Martyrs died for. I know what you're thinking. How does Amazon stay in business while giving great, great deals like this? Well, that is a company secret. And that's what this episode's brought to you by. So now back to the show. So there isn't a lot of recent U.S. mutinies, with the exception of the 2000 war one that was mentioned, but a fairly recent war, comparatively speaking, where there were quite a bit of mutinies and quite a lot of popular resistance to the military action was the Vietnam War. Right. Well, I think to start off with, there's a good quote from a Marine Colonel, Robert D. Heinel Jr., that he wrote in a military magazine that helps paint a picture of what the situation had become like in the US military in Vietnam. And he wrote, by every conceivable indicator, our army that remains in Vietnam is in a state approaching collapse, with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited. So I think that kind of paints a picture of what was happening. And as in previous conflicts like World War I, there's mutinies which are kind of spectacular one-off events. But then I think within the same family of rebellion by the rank and file, there's more general and longstanding combat avoidance and just trying to stay alive, which is both more widespread, but it's also harder to quantify or look at often from the perspective of history because there wasn't like a spectacular event here that you can then write a pamphlet about or whatever. It's more little stuff that happens here and there every day. The Vietnam War was a huge conflict that had large numbers of service people from all over the world. And from the US, there were millions of service people in Vietnam. And especially towards the latter part of the war, it was a very unpopular war. So there was widespread opposition to it. And some of that had spread to the military from the general population, but a lot of it had actually gone the other way, where people who had served in Vietnam began to oppose the war because of what they'd done. And then they came home and they started telling stories to people about what had happened and what was going on, which wasn't really being reported at the time. There were a lot of journalists in Vietnam reporting on the war, and there was a lot of good reporting there. But at the same time, military authorities did have a fair amount of control over what journalists could report, especially when it came to attitudes of service people, because they could limit or increase access to journalists depending on what they wanted them to write about. So yeah, returning service people helped expand anti-war sentiment at home by saying what was going on. And also the widespread anti-war movement in the US was, you could say, infecting service people. And so one thing that anti-war activists did in the US was they set up coffee shops by military bases, which were often kind of countercultural. So obviously at the same time, there was a mass counterculture 
rock music, smoking weed, hanging out, having fun. And that was spreading as well. And that kind of went along with, in a lot of cases, anti-authoritarian views, anti-war views, and that sort of thing. So there were these spaces, coffee shops, where service people would just hang out, but also there'd be anti-war materials. It's such a great tactic to think of. And not only was that tactic proposed, but it went into action and was part of a strategy which worked to, I mean, ultimately to change minds of soldiers, but was also part of America, I think. The fact that those anti-war activists with coffee shops and among other tactics threw pure attacks on people's faith in American decision-making when it came to war were able to basically help turn America against its own actions to the point where its action wasn't successful. And that's it's just an amazing thing to think about in that historical context when compared to throughout my lifetime, all of the wars have pretty much unchallenged except for big marches and speakers and books and stuff. I mean, that's, that stuff's all good. I'm not trying to like sh- <laughs> shit on that, but the, there wasn't like the cross society effort to like slow and stop wars that happened during Vietnam. It's like mind boggling to consider how all that sort of like fit together. And the countercultural element to even the mutinies on the other side of the water, like mutinies amongst American troops who are stationed in Vietnam and other places, there was like a countercultural element to that as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And just going back to the coffee shops briefly, because I didn't want to give the wrong impression that it was just kind of outside activists had done it. It was something that very much had the support of people on the base and they would work together with the people outside. There were anti-war papers that were put out by GIs themselves in the US and also a bunch of them were published out in Vietnam as well. In terms of the counterculture, yes, that traveled to Vietnam with service people. So just from minor things like it was now fashionable for people to grow their hair long, which is a violation of military standards. And I think with all of this, especially about culture and everything else, you can't forget about racial dynamics. So in the US military, there's a disproportionate number of people of color who serve, particularly African-Americans and Native Americans. And especially in the early part of the Vietnam War, which is, you know, just after the civil rights movement, hugely disproportionate numbers of black Americans are put in combat units because most service people in Vietnam at any one time aren't actively involved in fighting. So there's not much chance they'll actually get killed. But there was a massively disproportionate percentage of black Americans who were put in combat units. And so especially earlier on in the conflict, there is a hugely disproportionate death toll of African-Americans, which obviously had a huge impact, especially in terms of mobilizing opposition to the war and building anti-war sentiment amongst black GIs. And also there were cultural elements to that. Racial discrimination in the military was widespread. And even things like regulations on hair were very much enforced much more against black troops than white and things like that. So the generalized opposition to the officer class or the brass and the military was very much kind of driven by African-American service people. Wow. Yeah. And weren't the conditions in Vietnam like really, really bad compared to a lot of other wars. I was reading about just like PTSD recently and like the diagnosis of PTSD kind of comes into existence after the Vietnam War. And like, obviously people had it from previous wars. They called it shell shock. They called it other stuff. But I think 
the level of the atrocities that were going on combined with the unpopularness of the war is going to have massive effects on all of those soldiers' psychologies, not just like in how traumatized they're getting, but also in terms of how likely they are to say, fuck this, let's not participate in this. Yeah, exactly. I think also you can look at how warfare changed through the 20th century, which I think was partly driven by the rebellions that took place during World War One. I. I mean, obviously technology had an impact as well, but a lot of warfare had started to move away from large numbers of soldiers fighting against each other in a very personal, very face-to-face -face environment and move towards more distant things which are less in your face, you know, less in your face ways of killing air power, long distance artillery, that sort of thing. Technology had a big impact here. US did use things like air power in Vietnam and they dropped unimaginable amounts of bombs on Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos, like more than were used in the whole of World War II. Uh, so there's sort of like a trajectory in the US military and maybe by extension other militaries where there's like a cluster of mutinies in World War I and there's a cluster of mutinies in the Vietnam War that between the two of them really, from the military's perspective, these are like enormous dysfunctions of the military system. So they're trying to figure out ways to like stamp out all of the, in a very literal sense, free thought and action from their soldiers to make sure that they stay perfect units of the mission. And maybe we could say like the penultimate latest form of this sort of thing is the private military contractor who is accountable to this entirely different set of criteria and sort of selected for a love of participating in military conflict as like this like very most recent stage of this process of the development of authoritarian-style warfare over the last century. Yeah, I think you could say, on the one hand, those private battalions of kind of well-paid individuals, and on the flip side, the drone. Yeah, the death from above from someone sitting at a computer in Maryland. Exactly, sitting, basically playing on a Nintendo, blowing up real people at the other end. That's why we need a gamers union, because the gamers, we start with the gamers, and then the gamers can infect the drone operators, which are a subsection of gamer. And then from there, we can have the revolution that we need. That's just one theory <laughs> that a lot of people are saying. And now we go to a Tinder date. <laughs> uh, I'm having a great time, honestly. I really yeah, am. Yeah, it's pretty fun. So tell me more about you. Like, what are you interested in? I'm a history buff. I've actually just been reading this really interesting book lately. Oh. Driven out the Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans. I think you probably don't want to hear about that. Chinese Americans? What about them? Well, actually, I mean, it's sort of a, more broadly about, like, the historical racism that people from China faced. A lot of people think, like, oh, I mean, you know, the history of American racism, that stops and starts with the transatlantic slave trade. Well, it actually goes beyond that also in a lot of ways. I mean, not the least through colonial resource extraction, sometimes in many ways to this day, but also in the 1850s, for example, low-status Chinese laborers were used to do labor all across North America, you know, famously built the railway across Canada. They were called, derogatory term for them was coolies, and they were basically indentured slaves. Faced a lot of racism as well. They worked for really low pay. A lot of them actually didn't even sign up for what they ended up doing. Uh. That's overwhelming. It's quite a... Okay, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I... It, sound, it I sounds always, really interesting. I always do this. I'm a motor mouth. I'm sorry. It's okay. Can we get another um, round of drinks? Ah, I ordered another round of drinks when I'm nervous. I'm sorry. 
because I'm having a great time. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to tell too many oh, no, no, me stories too. about it. Because I mean, for example, some of the things I find fascinating about it is that up to 10% of the so-called like coolie ships, and often these were ships that were actually literally slave ships used from the transatlantic slave trade, refurbished or made to replicate those to transport large amounts of these low status Chinese workers over to America, um, in many cases illegally. Because a lot of these so-called coolies were laborers who believed they were signing one contract, but were actually signing another contract. So they thought they were gonna get a great rate on their time there, but they actually signed themselves over to work long hours at low rates, basically realizing that they'd signed themselves into slavery while on the boats on the way there. So one in 10 of those ships actually had uh, mutinies on them. Oh, I'm sorry crap. I did it again. What am I doing? It's, <laughs> I like Netflix. I like going for walks. I'm not a weird you know, guy. That's so interesting. I almost forgot to feel awkward. But now that you mention it, I do feel awkward again. We don't still do that today, do we? I mean, in a certain sense, sort of, yes. I mean, in a couple ways, I could draw the connections between that and now. But in 1862, during the Civil War, Congress passed the prohibition of the Cooley Trade Act, which banned any ship like that from coming to the U.S. There was this one particular huge, huge revolt in March of 1860, a thousand slaves from China mutinied on the, the ship, the Norway. It was an American ship. And what they did actually is they were locked below decks for almost a week. And what they did was they lit fires under each of the portholes to force open the hatches. They Holy got shit. out. The crew abandoned the ship and the captain threatened to cut off the masses saying like he's going to make sure that they can't get anywhere because they won't have any masts. And so basically the captain saying he's going to leave with the lifeboat and all the provisions and sink their ship with them on it. Eventually the sort of rebellion, the mutiny of the slaves, they ended up surrendering to the captain after the crew had killed 30 of the enslaved people and wounded 90 others. One of the people who's enslaved by these predatory contracts said later, bands of us threw ourselves upon them. Release us or we'll burn the ship. We have nothing to lose. It's really kind of a wild history, very recent to the 1850s, less than 200 years ago. Oh God, wow. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of how this connects and still doing it today, which is a question that you asked, in a sense, sort of, because here's a parallel is back then, during this period from the 1850s to the early 1860s, there was a lot of xenophobic anti-Asian racism in North America. And there, it took two paradoxical forms in that there were both shopkeepers from China coming over, setting up shops and stuff, setting up tailors, that sort of stuff in North America, around like mining towns and stuff like that. But then there was also the so-called coolies. Again, it's a derogatory term. I'm not sure if I'm even supposed to say it, but the thing is, so there was two sort of classes of migrants from China. And another thing is did you know the American border and border control services was actually originally set up to keep Chinese people out, not to keep Mexican people out? Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And then I was like, whoa, how does that even make sense? But you have to piece together the whole labor history. There's a racial element to it here because the sort of so-called like white workers saw the slave labor coming in from China as competing for their jobs, taking their jobs and lowering their wages. And so they directed racism towards shopkeeping and more like say i guess petite bourgeois shopkeepers that were chinese american or chinese people who would come to america treating them as if they were coolies and, and saying that they were coolies there basically to take their jobs even though they weren't from the same social class but other people there was another sort of conspiracy theory that the enslaved people were sent there by mandarin chinese businessmen 
who wanted to use them and have an unfair advantage against the white bosses. So like this is the sort of xenophobic environment there. And the parallel that I draw to the present is where you look where we have like, for example, here in Vancouver, we have this housing crisis and you have a lot of anti-Asian racism directed at sort of middle class and upper middle class Chinese Canadian immigrants who buy properties. But that sort of discrimination based on the narrative directed at the upper class, similarly based on the ethnicity commonality, lower income Chinese Canadians get the brunt of the sort of racism that's actually directed at the richer ones. So the sort of same things happen in reverse. It used to be that the richer immigrants faced anti-Asian racism based on a misconception they were part of a lower class, and now that's been reversed in the modern day. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Can we get some more drinks, please? I'm starting to relate to you like you're my professor and I'm the student instead of like a potential date thing. I don't know if that's the vibe you're going for, but that's what I'm getting from you. It's, uh, I'm not, I'm saying I don't like it. I'm just saying it's different. Less date, more teacher. Drunk Well, if you want, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is crazy, but maybe I'm teaching you. You are teaching me. I'm learning. Maybe that is what it is. I don't know. Can we get another round of drinks, please? I'm still getting full date vibes. Oh, well, at least we're all being open and honest about the vibes we're getting. That's cool. More drinks? Yeah, more drinks. The really crazy thing is some of the forms that the... Sorry, I was going to talk about anti-Chinese racism again. Whoosh, stop it, stop it. (laughs) Um... So, have you seen the Duncan Trussell show on Netflix? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That last episode with his mom. Oh, yeah. No, I've always loved that episode of his podcast, too. It's actually, like, really worth Yeah. Wow. I cried so many times. It's up there in, I think, podcasting. Yeah. Yeah, sir. Drinks, please. I know. We, I know we already have a lot. I know. I think this date's going great. What do you think? I think I can't wait to uh, chill with you. You know what I mean? I have no idea what that means. And that was a Tinder date. And now we go back to the show. So without losing the strand of the Vietnam War, because I think there's more stuff to say here, I'd love to, just because this is so juicy, to jump back to World War I for a bit, to hear a little bit about how that first cluster of mutinies went about. Like you said that these were spectacular mutinies, and that really piques my interest. Yeah, well... World War I has the most spectacular mutinies in world history, but also, as with later conflicts, there was, at the same time, a generalized undercurrent of rank-and-file resistance and avoidance of combat. But sure, we can start off with the biggies, especially like, I mean, it's 2020 now, so this was just over 100 years ago. A lot of countries that were involved in World War I, which obviously yours was one because <laughs> it used to be owned by us had centenary commemorations of the conflict, which I don't know how it was in Canada, but in Britain, I don't know how you'd describe it. I mean, bullshit is maybe one term you could sort of use. I wasn't forced to attend any sort of ceremonies this time, but I remember growing up around this sort of stuff and like the poppies and stuff. Like there is a real solemn... We're so sad about the people who have bravely sacrificed it in the past. Not that that's illegitimate to say that people made sacrifices or illegitimate to say that they were brave, but that, and this always bugged me as a kid, is that bravery without adjectives is actually not that great. Like you can be very brave doing something horrible. It always bothered me that we didn't focus on the fact that the soldiers were fighting for good. And then as I was older, it began to bug me that they weren't fighting for good in a lot of cases. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. There were quite a lot of big commemoration events and and press and everything like that. And also 
in school when you're a kid learning about World War One features quite heavily in the curriculum and often you learn a lot about how it started, Archduke Ferdinand and all that. But what people almost never talk about in the official commemorations is how it ended. It ended with mass revolutions, basically the Russian Revolution and then the German Revolution. The German army was obviously doing badly anyway, but the thing that finally put an end to the war was that the German Admiralty ordered the Navy to attack the British, essentially just to prolong the fighting as much as possible for Germany's dignity or something like that. And the sailors said no, and then they all refused, and then they headed to shore and started a revolution, which swept Germany, and then a general strike broke out, and then there were workers and soldiers and sailors' councils set up up and down the country that toppled the government. And that was a year after the Russian Revolution in 1917 broke out, which is one of the most momentous events in world history. And a primary factor in it was general upset about being part of this very pointless imperialist war that was essentially fighting over some scraps owned by some people with gold hats so that they could have a bit more land something around this time period that I just recently learned about and was told about by a friend is there's like a Canadian Siberian force that had refused to attack the Bolshevik Russia, that they refused orders. It was a group of indigenous Canadian and French Canadian soldiers that refused an order at the end of the First World War, and they refused to attack Russia. Yeah, and that wasn't the only one. After World War One ended, around 21 or 22 countries invaded Russia. And there were multiple mutinies against that because it really did inspire working people everywhere. There was a big mutiny in the French military on the Black Sea, and there were some smaller mutinies in the British Navy as well when people refused to ship out to attack revolutionary Russia. Is it fair to say that in the First World War, because it, they called it the war to end all wars, and then when they ended that war, they were like, it's Armistice Day, we're not going to have war anymore. But then when World War II came around, they're like, okay, no, we're going to keep doing wars. <laughs> and the tradition which continues to this day. But to what degree was there sort of like the Vietnam style soldier malaise during the fighting of the First World War? Or was it primarily like flashpoints at the end of the war where the mutinies really arose? Well, probably the most famous single incident of mutiny in World War One was really close to the beginning. And it's not normally referred to as a mutiny. It's normally referred to as the Christmas truce. So, I mean, for anyone who doesn't really know about how World One essentially worked was the Entente forces, so Britain, France, and Russia, dug a load of trenches, and they were in the trenches. And then the Allied forces on the other side, the Germans, they dug trenches, and they were in the trenches as well. Everyone was very much entrenched, literally. So it was very hard for either to advance. And in between them, the area was called No Man's Land. And the Christmas truce, basically firing stopped, and German soldiers started singing Silent Night. And then some people reported that they were kind of poking Christmas trees out from inside the trenches that people could see from the British trenches. And then the British troops started singing Silent Night as well. And then basically up and down the front, they started to emerge from the trenches and fraternize with each other. People exchange gifts like cigarettes and chocolate and things like that, try on each other's helmets and hats and things like that. And famously in a few places, played games of football up and down the line. And that was, I mean, obviously a really beautiful moment in such a bloody conflict where the two different sides could really see their common humanity. And after that happened, military authorities cracked down on it to ensure that would not happen again. 
I definitely remember learning about this in school. I think this is one of the few things I do remember about World War One from school, and it definitely was not presented as a mutiny. It was presented as like a Christmas miracle, the end of the Christmas special when everyone comes out and holds hands and sings songs. And like, I don't know if they actually told me this or this is just my memory, but I thought nobody ever got in trouble for it and nothing. Ha- it was just like a perfect, <laughs> beautiful Christmas moment. They would have done it the next year, except that one was just special and magical and no one had to conspire to stop this sort of like seeing humanity in each other. I actually got kind of choked up and like, I'm familiar with this story, but just contemplating again, if I can get on the soapbox for one second, another name for a Christmas miracle is a human miracle. Like, I mean, and I think it obviously helps in this specific circumstance that people fighting on both sides of the war shared a cultural and religious background that allowed them to find that sort of bonding. Yeah, they all knew the same song, Silent Night. Yeah, and that you can be like, I mean, if we were to do like a historical survey of whether or not all holding hands and singing Kumbaya is a powerful thing, then this would be a really strong evidence that actually it is. Because people always shit talk singing Kumbaya. They're like, you think we're going to get together and sing Kumbaya? And it's like, yeah, look at December 1914. It worked. It fucking worked. We did it. We just need to know the same song as these motherfuckers. Like, if can you imagine in the... Sorry for being so vulgar, but the, can you imagine if we could just get the guys in ISIS to learn some songs that we really love? Like, Don't Stop Believing or something? Like... <laughs> Like if you hear of all the American soldiers or the Democratic Federation in Northern Syria or or anyone else who's in conflict with ISIS should start sending tapes with Don't Stop Believing on it over to their side, wherever ISIS is, and start loudly singing Don't Stop Believing every now and then to try to build a kinship and pull them out of this hateful authoritarian ideology. But then also similarly, when resistance movements break out against... <laughs> the geopolitical Western order, they'll have to use that tactic as well to get the boots on behalf of the American military. Those guys will connect with them with Don't Stop Believing. That, that'll be easy. But I think ISIS is the first step. Sorry for the, the side note here. But just the, the fact that music like that could be involved in getting people to put down weapons is almost too beautiful to be true. I'm familiar with this story. And I'm still like sort of shaken by contemplating what it would mean to get out of the trenches and try on each other's hats. It makes me want to cry. Yeah, no, I mean, me too. And even though it was totally opportunistic and just to make some money, a British supermarket called Sainsbury's a couple of years ago did their Christmas advert depicting the Christmas truce. And obviously at the end, the chocolate bar had a Sainsbury's logo on it. But other than that, you know, (laughs) it was really beautiful. And it is something that could have been made by worker activists or whatever if we had a big budget, but we don't. But I mean, in terms of what you said about people being punished afterwards, yeah, the unofficial ceasefire covered about 100,000 people. It was very large. Essentially, that's too many people to punish. And also, I think the fact that it's on Christmas, you know, would be a bit of a PR misfire to penalize people for that. But afterwards, High Command did reissue orders and bring in harsher punishments to stop fraternization. Like, for example, the London Rifle Brigade on the 2nd of January 1915 kind of sent a memo saying that informal truces with the enemy were to cease and that any officer found having initiated one would be tried by court-martial. Also, after that happened, more people started dying in the war, which then made fraternization less likely. But I think this is where we get into what's potentially more interesting than the spectacular mutinies, which is the general everyday resistance. 
which in the military, I think it's a lot like workplaces as well, where in history books, a lot spoken about big strikes here, there and everything. And they are important, but really determining how a society functions and what work looks like and what our everyday lives are like. It's not just the big strikes that shape how we're treated and what our work lives are like. A lot of it is just about on a day-to-day level, what will we put up with? And historically in industry, in most countries like Western countries where there was manufacturing industry, workers in those industries would set informal paces for their work. And if new people came in and they went to work too fast, they would be informally disciplined by the other workers in the shop or in the plant or whatever to kind of slow things down and not make everyone else look bad. And that could be kind of social sanctions. If someone's being too much of a job's worth, they might get shunned or whatever. Or, you know, this person is making the rest of us look bad. It's going like the clappers. If we all do this, one of us is going to get hurt. So maybe they scratch their car or punch him after work or something like that. But essentially all these kind of informal and like in most kind of office settings today, it's normally not as structured as that as it was in those kind of big manufacturing type industries but still there's each kind of workplace has a culture do you know what i mean and then you kind of you can change and shape that culture like how late do you stay after work do you work through your lunch or do you do you see what i mean so there's all these things about what you kind of accept and it's the same in the military so say again it's quite hard to determine because they weren't spectacular events that there were journalists there to write about what happened any kind of fraternization or shirking was technically illegal so people couldn't really talk about it but there were a couple of studies done in the 60s and 70s looking at british forces in world war one and they found that there was widespread general shirking and also people were doing stuff to try and make their lives easier and stay alive so there was a widespread unofficial principle called live and let live, which was essentially an informal agreement between soldiers on the front line of opposing armies to not do any kind of offensive activity against each other beyond a mutually agreed and tolerable level, which didn't put them too much in danger, if you see what I mean. So often these people, they couldn't speak the same language. They couldn't even often communicate because they were slightly too far apart. They couldn't have yelled. And also if they had yelled, they probably would have been shot for being a spy or colluding with the enemy or something like that. But what the officers reported or soldiers reported, that they would do things like from the trenches, they were supposed to mortar each other, right? So the British should be lobbing mortars into the Germans' trenches and the Germans should be lobbing them back. Now, the trenches weren't moving, so no one was really gaining any ground And so neither side had anything to gain by mortaring each other, other than if they got mortared, they'd be more likely to die. So you had a lot of examples where kind of the British soldiers would deliberately mortar a place that had nothing in it, and then the Germans would do it back. So then both sides were more likely to stay alive and less likely to be killed by the opposition's mortars. And similarly, they did things like that with gunfire, because for the officers who were there, they had to look like they were still fighting in a war. They'd just shoot their guns somewhere where the other side... (laughs) Holy, that just, (laughs) just the thought of the parallel between the workplace and like we're setting our pace for killing each other because we recognize the people on the other side are human beings. I'm just finding this to be very mind blowing to contemplate. Like I've never thought before of soldiers being like, oh, okay, here comes the boss. I'm killing him. I'm killing him. Okay, he's gone. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I, I think that's such a great point that you make about like the shirking generally and like the big moments not being everything because when you describe these 
these two phenomena that at the end of World War One, there's the Russian Revolution and then like mutinies breaking out in all these different militaries involved in the war. And before that, this general culture of small transgressions against the military order that they're embedded in being like why are we bombing each other when the lines are like did they just send it to that empty place on purpose yeah maybe let's bomb somewhere that's empty on their side yeah like that little spark of going against or just slowing things down and like looking out for each other that everyday rebellion is what part of what lays the groundwork for those bigger things to happen later on yeah exactly and you know like you say with the mortars being shot somewhere deliberately not it was a reciprocal agreement. So if one side started breaching the agreement, the other side would penalize them. So one occasion in a place where this was happening, the Germans did start targeting mortars more accurately than the trenches. And then, you know, the Brits just did it right back. And then the Germans backed off again. And I mean, one thing that I thought was was quite amusing. In one instance, the British soldiers basically reported that, you know, in the bits where they had to fire their guns to look like they were doing something, the Germans decided they liked shooting a nearby cottage. So they would just keep shooting it at bits in the walls until they could make holes in it. <laughs> so that so they just keep shooting around the wall until they'd cut out a nice hole. But yeah, and you know, exactly, I think what you say is right, that this does kind of lay the groundwork on what these studies found was that this kind of like joint activity changed the rank and file soldiers perception of we and they, you know, instead of it being we the Brits and they the Germans, the we started to be we these poor schmucks stuck here in the most appalling conditions. Trench life was horrific, lice everywhere, inadequate food, no kind of health stuff, just horrible. <laughs> health problems arising that later became named after the trenches. Yeah, exactly. Old stuff like gout. And so the we started to become them and their enemy. And the they was the brass, the officers who were in their nice mansions in the French countryside or whatever, eating peacocks and whatever else posh people ate back then in French mansions. My whole life I've heard the term fraternize with the enemy. But I never made the connection now until this discussion that the reason you're not supposed to fraternize with the enemy is because you might like them. And the whole concept of fraternization is a response to things as beautiful as the Christmas truce. Because I always think of fraternizing with the enemy in terms of like political organizations or something like that, like very rigid political organizations. Like you can't talk to such and such. They're from the wrong tendency. In that context, I mean, it applies just the same. Like the reason you can't talk to them is because you might like them. And you might start saying, why do we have all these artificial barriers between us? Who's ordering us into these trenches? Who's made us hate each other? And I think those questions are scary for authoritarian organizations. Yeah, no, exactly. And also the thing about fraternization, it not being like a political thing or about political organizing, it's literally about humans, especially working class humans, just interacting with each other and seeing what they have in common. In addition to the live and let live arrangements, there was another kind of informal arrangement called search and ignore. So sometimes people were sent out from the trenches to search and destroy enemy positions. Essentially, both sides would be sent out to do that, but they'd have an unofficial agreement that they would just leave each other be. And they called that search and ignore. Oh, it just tickles me so much to imagine the adversarial relationship between generals and soldiers. Because I always just, I think of it in the way 
that military leaders want it to be thought of and structure it, which is like this downflowing hierarchical arrangement. But I also know from experience in my life and seeing a million different places that those hierarchical relationships of command and control and punishment don't work, that people always like push back up against them and find different ways. And especially certain types of people, I think they try to like separate the people who can <laughs> really, really commit to it from people who can't for these types of reasons now. But like, it tickles me. This is a joyous set of associations for me that is brand new. I'm stoked about Like I'm, I'm really, the Christmas truce belongs to us, not the capitalist advertisers. It belongs to us. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by a completely fair way for us to use the audio of that Sainsbury's Christmas truce advert. My name is Jim. My name is Otto. Pleased to meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Happy Christmas. Frohe Weihnachten. And that was, in my estimation, a really fair use reproduction of some audio from a Sainsbury's advertisement. You know, you can't see the chocolate bar in the audio, but I'm sure their chocolate bars taste fine. Like most chocolate is good. It has sugar in it. And I don't know if it's fair trade. I've never been to a Sainsbury's. That's not my continent. But if it's not fair trade, you could do a bit better Sainsbury's. But um, good job on the advertisement. The human beings who were contracted by Sainsbury's to make that advertisement, big thanks to you. Were there similar things that happened during World War II? I guess it's harder against the Nazis. Yeah, I think World War I was a conflict where even now a lot of people don't seem that sure about what it was actually about. And as literally it was just about rival empires trying to oppose each other. It was something that was harder to motivate people to die for, whereas World War II, at least the way it was advertised, the way it was billed, was very much as kind of a war of democracy and civilization against fascism and barbarism. And while, of course, the fascist side was barbaric, the supposedly democratic side wasn't really that democratic, considering that especially powers like Britain still had empires all over the world. There wasn't a lot of democracy there, and they were quite happy to murder large numbers of the local population to make sure they could take their resources. So yeah, World War II, it was a much more ideologically supported war by the service people. And so there aren't really that many documented mutinies. Certainly there are instances of resistance, especially within the German army, because you know, you've got to remember before World War II started, in Germany, the Communist and Socialist parties got huge numbers of votes, and there were a lot of really dedicated anti-fascists in Germany. And a lot of them ended up 
um, those who didn't get sent to the concentration camps or killed or, or locked up elsewhere, a lot of them got conscripted into the military. And there are examples of people there who tried to resist the war effort and sabotage what they could on a kind of small levels. So, I mean, just as a small example there, there was a German guy called Hans Schmitz, who was an anti-fascist before the war. He had been arrested by the Scarpo and jailed for that. But in the end, he got put into the army and he would kind of organize with a clique of other anti-fascist people in the military to try and make sure his unit didn't kill anyone or do anything bad. Near the end of the war, he was in an anti-aircraft battery and he managed to sabotage it enough so that it never fired a single shot. Other than kind of small things like that, the most widespread possible example of resistance to military authority was potentially combat avoidance. So a US Army officer, this guy at SLA Marshall, who was the chief, a chief combat historian of the US Army during World War II, he produced a study called Men Against Fire, which he said showed that only around 15 to 20% of combat troops actually fired their weapons at the enemy. And when it came down to it, about 80% didn't actually do that, didn't actually shoot their weapons at an enemy to kill them. Now, his work has been criticized by some and his methodology has been criticized. So it's not clear exactly how much truth there is to that. Interesting. I feel like any number above 0% of people who, when given the option, would rather pretend to shoot at the enemy than shoot at the enemy. Pretty awesome. And to imagine that it could be up to 80%, also very awesome. Another thing worth mentioning in respect to World War II, again, is racial dynamics in the United States, which was exceedingly racist. The army was still segregated by race and black soldiers were very much discriminated against. And there were a lot of examples of black soldiers' resistance to racism in the US military, albeit the cases that I'm aware of on the US mainland, often just in terms of there being resistance to and fights with white military police around military bases and things like that. Going back to Vietnam, the rebellion in the US military in Vietnam was very diverse. There were spectacular mutinies and one-off things. There was also widespread combat avoidance, as in World War I. So a common thing in Vietnam military was that instead of going on search and destroy missions, men instead would go on what they called search and avoid missions. Oh, no, I haven't got that mixed up with the other one, have I? <laughs> uh, no, the other one was search and ignore. They'd be sent out of the base supposedly to go find some NLF, National Liberation Front fighters, sometimes known as Viet Cong. But instead, they'd leave the base. Then they'd go on a nice little jaunt. I mean, not really nice because obviously it was still very dangerous. But they'd deliberately go in such a way as to not come across any opposing fighters and then not get killed. So that sort of thing was widespread. There was widespread use of drugs, cannabis, which... I guess it's not really commensurate with a good attitude to military discipline. Yeah, there's a reason that you don't get it. Like when you first sign up for the military, they like shave your head, they put you through training and they're like, here's your ounce. <laughs> Happy smoking. <laughs> exactly. And like smoking cannabis was really widespread. And some sources stated that up to 30% of US combat troops were using heroin. Although I know that some of the veterans that I've spoken to said that they thought that that figure was overstated by right-wing figures to make it look like the GI resistance was 
driven by drug-addled hippies rather than decent Americans. Uh, yeah, so it might have been something like one in 30 or one in 40 had done heroin and like half of them were smoking weed. And then so they inflated the numbers because heroin sounds more frightening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so someone needs to make the epic war movie that shows that kind of bravery. Maybe not necessarily like doing heroin <laughs> but uh, all the other stuff, like firing off in different directions, search and ignore missions. You know, whenever you're glorifying war, people are always glorifying the people who like killed the other side the best and stuff. I just, I don't know. I feel like that would be beautiful. Yeah, get Seth Rogen and like Jack Black and like those guys to play like these goofy American and they're like sneaking off smoking weed and like, oh, I'm pretending to shoot and stuff. I think you could, it'd have to be sort of crass and it would have to sort of, not touch on some of the deep problems of war, except maybe at the low point of the story structure. But I think it could really do a lot to help promote pacifism amongst the general population to have Seth Rogen be the guy who avoided military service, did search and avoid missions and stuff. I think you're really onto something there, Aaron. I think that could be part of our transition to a better society. I was thinking more of like an epic war movie that glorified these (laughs) behaviors, but I'm Uh, down for the comedy as well. That's great. More like Tom Cruise, like sweat going down his face and he's like shooting away from people and his internal <laughs> yeah, exactly, monologue yeah. about their families and stuff. And I, well, if you're coming to shooting people, I mean, I think this is an element of the Vietnam resistance, which is really quite unique in terms of resistance in the military. And that is that US troops invented a tactic which they called fragging to deal with commanding officers that they didn't really like. And so fragging referred to fragmentation grenades, which would traditionally be rolled under the bunk of an officer that you didn't like, and then they would be blown to smithereens. (laughs) So they'd blow up the guy they didn't like? Yes, with a hand grenade. So they get like high on heroin and then blow up their commander with a hand grenade? (laughs) The climactic scene in the Tom Cruise movie. So yeah, so like fragging of officers became quite widespread. The figures weren't really reported that much, as I'm sure you can imagine. The Pentagon is not super happy to come out with some graph saying, look, oh, you know, we've been really well. This week, there's only been four officers fragged by their men. You know, we think that morale's really improving. (laughs) So, but there were hundreds, at least hundreds of documented killings, obviously not just by hand grenades. There was one example of a guy whose officer, he was just so sick of him, he emptied an entire clip of his machine gun into him. So he just kept shooting him and shooting him until it was all empty. So there was that, which is kind of a, you could say, a spectacular example of of this resistance. And there was also this very kind of organized political resistance to the war as well, with these GI anti-war newspapers that were even being printed and distributed in Vietnam itself. And sometimes these magazines would put out bounties on the heads of unpopular officers. So one officer had a bounty of $10,000 put on his head by one of these anti-war newspapers, and he had to leave the country. Wow. I mean, obviously, it's horrible to unload a clip from a machine gun into another human being. But when you place it in the context that the guy who got the clip of machine gun was a guy who was there to make other people put machine guns against other people who hadn't done any such thing, that sort of stuff is so interesting to imagine that the soldiers together and the the information and ideas that spread amongst the soldiers and amongst the civilian population during Vietnam, which was heavily cross-pollinated with hair-growing, pot-smoking counterculture, it's really a mind-blowing thing to wrap my head around right now. Although I knew some of these individual pieces, like this picture 
of them together, it's like, it's staggering to think that frag grenades exploding officers was downstream from the counterculture. Yeah, the counterculture and, of course, the Black Power movement, which part of it fed into it. And uh, when talking about things like fragging, I didn't mean to kind of make light of it in a way as it wasn't an abstract act of just rebellion. You know, in a very real sense, it was often just about self-preservation again. A phrase that was used a lot in Britain during World War One was lions led by donkeys, the lions being the troops and the donkeys being the ones in charge of them. And the Vietnam War is another good example of that. US military strategy was just completely flawed. So often you might have a situation where the senior officer would decide to try and take a mountaintop. Generally in a war taking land is a win. So the people above you will be like, oh, well done, that's good. But these mountains, they'd have no strategic importance. There may have been a base for the NLF on it. But then if the US comes and throws everything they have at it, then NLF would leave. And then the US troops, they might lose hundreds of people. And then they've got this mountain. They can't just stay there because if they want to keep the mountain, they'll have to stay there for the whole duration of the war. And there's no point because that mountain has got nothing useful in it. There's no oil in it. <laughs> so there's nothing worth staying for. So then they'd have to just leave and then the NLF would, would come back. And so in a very real sense, you, these soldiers were being used as cannon fodder by these trigger-happy officers who just wanted to get a pat on the head. So that's why sometimes, you know, offing them or putting a bounty on their head would be a real material way of, I suppose putting an alternative for the officers. So they say, well, if I do this and succeed, then I'll get a pat on the head and maybe a promotion. But if I do this, I might get a grenade rolled under me while I'm asleep. They have to actually consider the consequences, which they would not otherwise have had to have done. That's why the pirates democratize their ships, because that exact sort of dynamic. So it's interesting to imagine that sort of context where you middle manager figure, and you need to figure out how much you can keep your troops liking you, but you're between a rock and a hard place. There's two competing authorities that both have a very sort of final say on your behavior. Oh, that music means it's intermission time. This is a time where you can go fill up your popcorn, fill up your pop, stop by the salad bar. So we're all ready for the second part of this episode. But for those of you who are already fed and watered, we have some very special coming attractions to show you during this break. There's something special about these three movies. Do you want to tell them what it is, Sean? Yeah, well, you know how sometimes there's something in the air or producers want something certain in Hollywood, just some, some specific thing. You know, movies about cowboys are on fire. Get me your best five scripts about cowboys. You know, this is how it works in the top. Everyone knows this. Well, sometimes that creates a situation where you have, say, there's three movies about a family adopting and then losing a dog. And they all came out within a couple months of each other. Well, right now, something wild has happened. We've got three movies coming out within the course of one month that are all about the same subject. There's something in the air. We don't know what it is, but it smells and tastes and looks like mutinies. Now, movies, of course, only have video and sound. There's no smell in them. At least for now. But they are all about mutinies, so let's begin the trailers. Grandpa, when you were in the war, did you kill anybody? Well, sonny boy, you know what they say. You've got to know when to hold them. So it's called Search and Avoid. We could save a lot of lives this Oh, way. no, if the Sarge hears that, they're gonna have us all executed. Well, maybe we execute him. 
You've got to know when to fold them. I don't want to catch you shooting above the heads of those innocent villagers and children one more time, or else I'm going to kick you out of the U.S. military. Get them, boys. You've got to know when to run and hide. All escaped soldiers, please Which way to the bed. rendezvous point? Oh, they're sending the dogs after us. Have solidarity, brother. Our numbers are growing. By the end of the year, we're going to have every single person in the U.S. military on our side. You'll always protect me. Right, Grandpa? You, Mr. Finkus, guilty of sedition. You stay away from my family. Boys on the front lines don't want this. The boys on the front lines want peace. One thing I learned about blood is that it's all the same color. Grandpa! From director Gertrude Finkus, the visionary mind behind 1917, brackets communist, and Kronstadt on HBO comes the gripping story of a man who set out to save some souls and ended up saving his own. I'll always protect you. Always. Starts Friday. Meet Chostifer and Geet, two partners shipped off to war who couldn't be more different. Hey man, is this bunk taken? No problem, man. Why don't you uh, pull up a seat? <laughs> Hope you like breaking rules. But rules aren't meant to be broken. What is this under my mattress? A baggie of... Give it a sniff. Drugs. <laughs> Come on, let's go shirk off work and not shoot anybody. But, 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 the sergeant said... Uh, the sergeant's a dipshit. Plus, you said but like eight or nine times. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh no. One of them, a soft-spoken loner from a military family. The other one, a pot-smoking hippie with long hair. He's a court-martial waiting to happen. Yeah, and so I figured out if you shoot above their head, you don't actually kill them. You know what, Geet? Your rule-breaking is really starting to make some sense. Yeah, you know what they say, troops go to war to try to save a few souls, but end up saving themselves along the way. Feel the same way, brother. Can you pass the bong, please? Geet. Way to ruin a nice moment. Come on, are you gonna hit this shit with me this time? We're at war, for Christ's sake. Okay, just this once. Uh. Oh, it does. It makes the pain go away. It's like I'm not even traumatized anymore. Well, I don't want to oversell it. Oh, you're right. No, it's still there. Two very different soldiers in desperate times. And desperate times call for zany, kooky measures. The rocket launcher's full of gummy bears? Now that's not where you're supposed to put a fish. The sergeant's dressed as a woman! I dosed his makeup with ecstasy. Soon he'll be admitting to all of his crimes. I did war crimes in Cambodia, Vietnam. Oh, it feels so good to say this, to tell this to someone. This is the best homecoming dance ever. From the creator of Those Aren't My Troops 1 and Those Aren't My Troops 2 comes a gut-busting comedy called That's Not My Troops 3, colon, triplet edition. Hey, who gave that monkey my gun? <laughs> Coming soon to Wrongtown Home Video. Critics are raving about Thinkus. The greatest, most touching film of all time. 
The Perfect Movie, AV Club. A gripping true story that teaches us deep truths about ourselves. IGN. The true story of the lone genius who invented drone war and privatized military is brought to life splendidly by Alfonso Cuaron. A film about a man trying to save a few souls who ended up saving himself along the way. Movie web. This stark drama reminds us that everyday resistance in the military erodes trust in the social order and perception of hegemony and can only be stomped out by corporations, which is a good thing. National Review. Bourgeois trash in the best way. A mandatory guilty pleasure for all proletarians. The rare movie with both hammer and sickle. Weekly Worker News and Reviews. A surprisingly feminist take, Washington Post. A 10 out of 10 picture event. Civilization has hope after all. It must be saved. The Unabomber. The film that swept the Oscars, winner of 17 Academy Awards, widely praised as the crowning achievement of modern film, is available in stores and on demand now. Bring Finkus home today. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the specific mutinies that happened in Vietnam? Yeah, and there were a few mostly relatively small mutinies as part of the conflict and other kind of one-off rebellions. So one of the biggest early rebellions was a riot in Long Bin Jail, a prison which was built by the US military in Vietnam where they locked up disobedient soldiers. So at Long Bin Jail, it was built for about 400 people, but there were over 700, mostly black soldiers, overcrowded, treated really poorly, mostly white MPs and officers running the place, being racist and oppressive and all that. Eventually, the people detained just got sick of the treatment, couldn't take it anymore, and they rebelled. So this was the early part of the war, still in 1968, and they took control of the jail and set about systematically destroying the whole place. In the end, it took a few days for US troops to have to come and retake the destroyed jail from the rebels. So that was an early rebellion. In other places, there was sabotage on ships. A couple of ships were disabled by sabotage. So the USS Anderson and the USS Ranger were both put out of action. So on the Anderson, someone had dropped a bunch of nuts and bolts and chains down the main gear shaft. On another ship, the USS Kitty Hawk, there was a catalogue of racist incidents that were going on on the ship and when they were in port in the Philippines in Subic Bay. Eventually, that exploded into a major riot and mutiny on the ship between black sailors and white sailors and officers. It's an interesting thing to think about as a tool in the toolkit if you're like taking the side of mutineers to be like, whatever else, it looks bad on them if a mutiny succeeds. So that's part of the reason they really like crack down on mutinies. But it's also part of the reason that if you have a successful mutiny, a limited mutiny in a certain sense, that authoritarian military leaders will try to find a way to spin it where they still look good. Because I guess one way to do that is to claim that they're all heroin addicts. <laughs> but another way to do it is be like, oh, no, they raised valid concerns and we address those concerns. It was not a mutiny. It was a, a very normal stuff over there. Yeah, exactly. You know, we decided not to invade that bit of Cambodia. So yeah, that's just amazing to think like how people's integrity and like throughout history when there's been tons and tons of situations where people were faced like regular people like like you or I were faced with the decision 
to follow orders and be unethical or not follow orders and risk punishment and chose to risk punishment instead of doing something they knew was wrong. I can't think of anything more beautiful and more what I would want to define humanity by than anything. It's just such a profound break from hierarchy when people risk it to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And when we talk about these histories so much, like it just, Sean, when you mentioned like, this is how I want to see humanity, or this is what I think is fundamental. I can't remember what word you used, but just thinking of the idea of like, oh, humanity has this long history of wars and the extremely pessimistic view that can sometimes give people about like the nature of human goodness and evilness and all that stuff. It's really helpful and edifying to know that even in these kinds of situations, there's often so much pushback going on that isn't talked about in like mainstream narrative about it so much or like the simplified versions of it that serve the interests of the state. Not to be contrary, I agree with both of you in what you're saying, but I think also in these cases, you know, especially with World War One and the Vietnam War, these rebellions were not just motivated by altruism. They were motivated by someone's self-interest and the desire not to get killed. But I think, you know, that can be just as powerful, if not more so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that it's easier to want to do the moral thing or whatever when your life is also in jeopardy. It strikes me that in normal circumstances, unless we contrive circumstances to make this not true, usually self-protection and altruism are very, very overlapped. In a lot of cases, self-protection and altruism go hand in hand. And it's only in sort of like very limited contrived situations. Like, for example, if your squad leader tells you you're not allowed to play Christmas football with the enemy anymore, that it really becomes that sort of zero-sum thing. So I think that some of the ways that governments, especially like the US and Britain, that the way they've conducted war has changed in part because of these kind of rebellions. I mean, for example, just kind of thinking about it, the Vietnam War wasn't that long ago, right? 50 years ago. And these were US citizen teenagers and young adults who were being sent across the world to have a very high chance of dying, as well as having to do awful things to other people. They did this to millions of people. Can you imagine them trying to do that now? People talk about uh, millennial and how snowflakey they are or whatever. Would you, if the government told you, yeah, so we need you to go and maybe die in a jungle? Off you go. What would you think? Sorry, wait, which jungle? <laughs> wait, what country is that? And for what purpose? Like, what does this have to do with, are they like Hitler there? Or I think yeah. the justifications for the Vietnam War were a little bit less convincing in terms of their moral power. I think that's quite an accurate statement, yeah. Just something about dominoes. What is the shiniest, most positive justification for the Vietnam War? Nothing's coming to mind. I just think of it as senseless war that was abandoned. I mean, I think the way that it would be seen by decent American patriots is communism bad, so you can save them from oh, it. Yeah. yeah, stop in the spread. Exactly. Yeah, the domino theory was like different countries become communist and then it all falls in a row and you have to like get in there and stop it because everyone sh should hate communism. It's awful. Yeah, I don't think people would go for that now either. 
No, no, exactly. And even though, you know, obviously the struggles in the 1960s and 70s, working class struggles and other struggles of different groups, the women's movement, black power movement, LGBTQ liberation movement, and all that, those struggles, and what they referred to at the time as the American Indian movement of Native Americans were bigger and more visible than today. I think that you've got to think what life was like before that point, where largely the government could just say, yeah, okay, we want a few million of you to go and kill a load of people over here. Tens of thousands of you at least are going to die, but what are you going to do? You've got to do it for the flag. I mean, I don't think that I'm being optimistic about my fellow people now that I just think if the government said that nowadays, they would be swiftly overthrown. Yeah, I don't think people would go for... Because I always think of Vietnam in terms of what became of it. But to imagine sort of like the beginning gall of the Vietnam War, to go to war for such craven geopolitical interests, it's right to draw a distinction between the way that they talk about and operate modern wars, which is also horrifying, and that sort of just like extremely blatant just meat grinder of young American people. <laughs> it's not the same anymore. Yeah, in that, you know, conflicts now, obviously there are still horrific wars, but there has not been a land invasion of the scale of Vietnam by the US since then. And I think there is a reason for that because it's not like the US hasn't wanted to do it. It's not like the US government wouldn't want to overtake a load of stuff. But they've moved to a more professionalized standing army, which is more separate from the rest of the population. There hasn't been that kind of mass draft or conscription. And also there's been more of a move to essentially more alienated ways of killing through things like if you're a drone operator, that choice of do you do the good thing of not killing people is a much harder thing to do because you're not risking your life. Your sense of self-preservation doesn't push you to do the altruistic thing. Your sense of self-preservation in that sense, just like, well, I'm going to kill these people because this is my job. I don't want to get court-martialed. I bet you if you brought in some of the people who are on the other end of the joystick, uh, like the <laughs> into the office where people are at their computers doing this sort of thing, and the drone operators got to try on their hats and they got to try on the drone operator's hats, it would make doing that job very different from then on. Yeah. And I mean, we can think of drones as basically a device designed <laughs> by military leaders to prevent the trading of hats, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, and chocolate bars and cigarettes and that sort of thing. Singing the same songs. Yeah, there's no little speaker on the drone where you can play Don't Stop Believing to show them that you're both on the same side, the human side. There's no option there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, drones are just kind of an example, but the same goes for a lot of the other kind of weaponry that was most used in recent conflicts. Things like cruise missiles, airstrikes, daisy cutters, and so on. The death toll, even though you know, a lot of US and allied UK or whatever troops have died in those conflicts, it's been an order of difference away from what it was in the Vietnam War era. Another kind of spectacular example of a mutiny in the Vietnam War was aboard the USS Columbia Eagle when two merchant seamen, Alvin Glatkowski and Clyde McKay, were transporting 10,000 tons of napalm for US forces to be dropped on Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. And they decided that rather than be party to that, they would hijack the ship. So they smuggled uh, guns on board, hijacked the ship and sailed it to Cambodia which was a neutral country at the time. 
to try to take the arms out of the war. You did a, a six-part series on this where you were able to talk to some of the people who were involved, right? Yeah, I was very honored to be able to speak with Alvin Glakowski, who was one of those mutineers, about what happened. Basically, it, I mean, it's too long to go into here, but essentially after they arrived in Cambodia, events happened which they could not have foreseen, which unfortunately ended up going very badly for the both of them. But that is another story. <laughs> Cool. Well, we'll link the series in the description of this episode too, so people can check it out because it is like a absolutely mind-bending story. It's the most recent armed mutiny in U.S. history, right? Aboard a vessel, yes. I think depending on your language. Oh, I see. Is it, there's a more recent armed mutiny not inside a vessel where like soldiers turn their guns on their? Well, I think you could probably argue some of the fragging incidents might have counted. Do you oh, know what I mean? Yeah. I mean but yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's like during the Vietnam War, there was people were sort of more regularly turning their guns on their the people above them. Exactly. And in Iraq and Afghanistan recently, there have been a couple of examples of people working for the US military going on shooting sprees in those bases. Ooh, please, pass the marshmallows. I am going to make some s'mores. I'll pass the marshmallows on one condition. You pass me some graham crackers. I think that that is a fair and deliberate trade, my good sir. Here you go. There you go. Thank you. And there's chocolate there for everyone. Wow, this is beautiful. You know what I like to do when we're sitting around the campfire like this is swap mutiny stories. Oh yeah, did your family used to do that too when you were a kid? Swap mutiny stories by the campfire at night tradition? Yeah, yeah. Nice. I think everyone does that. Everyone I know. Do you know about the mutiny on the Potemkin? Hit me with it. Okay, so the year is 1905. Russia is in a state of unrest. The military has you know, harsh conditions, brutal punishments. There's little mutinies happening on ships, striking workers and things going on in the country. And the crew on the battleship Potemkin is like really unhappy. They're being served meat with maggots in it and reports of soup that contained worms. Disgusting. So tensions are escalating and a crew member gets murdered by an officer for like standing up for the, the ship members about this and they just mutiny. They kill that officer who murdered the crew member, kill several other officers, they hoist a red flag, form a people's committee to run the ship and set sail for the port of Odessa where striking workers are already clashing with police, like a general strike's been called. They come to Odessa, they're having a funeral for Valenchuk, this is the guy who was killed by the officer, and the funeral turns into a political demonstration. The military shows up, it's not pretty. The ship tries to fire actually two six-inch shells into a theater where some high-level military meeting was supposed to be taking place, but they miss. The next morning, the ship tries to escape the port and is met by multiple battleships. One of them tries to ram the Potemkin, fails, and they get away. After that, some little skirmishes, but eventually they surrender to Romanian authorities. But that uprising was the start of a tumultuous period that has a lot of direct connections to the Bolshevik revolution 12 years later. Like Vladimir Lenin led an uprising just after the battleship Potemkin. And it was kind of just like a signal to the people in Russia that the social order was no longer being respected, that people didn't agree with the czar anymore. And it was one of the big dominoes that fell leading up to the Russian revolution. It's a wild story. And that mutiny was one of like the sort of symbolic mythological pieces of the Soviet Union after the Soviet revolution, right? Battleship Potemkin was made into a movie by a famous Soviet filmmaker. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think Sergei Eisenstein was his name. He was a pioneer of montages back before montages were really a known thing. Okay, here's one. Here's a good little mutiny story. Gather around, folks. The year is 1862. There's an enslaved man by the name of Robert Smalls. He's got a wife and a kid, all enslaved people, up for auction, basically, facing a time in the near future where they might be sold off to different families and separated. So Smalls, he's like 23. He's working on this Confederate ship. And he's so worried about being separated from his wife and his kid. So heartbreaking to him to think that that might happen if she was sold to a different family or his kid was sold to someone and uh, decides that he's got to try to make a break for it. They've got to try to escape slavery somehow, even if it meant risk being beaten and likely killed. Any man who's involved in a slave revolt of any kind would likely be killed and the women and children would be badly punished. So they were on this boat. It was a Confederate boat, a military boat that the officers left at night. They left the black slaves in charge of maintaining the boat at night and they would go home to like their wives and families and stuff for the night in the city because they actually believed slaves were naturally docile. They believed that it was impossible for this sort of thing to happen. They wouldn't even consider it as a possibility. So one night when they're all home, Robert Smalls has been working for months talking to the other enslaved people on the ship to say, we got to make a break for it. And uh, it's obviously a tough decision. The, the stakes are really high, but nobody wants to be human property. It's a pretty dehumanizing condition they're in, and they face the threat of unknown horrors around the corner, even when things are going well. So he's able to convince people it's a good idea. And one night in 1862, during the night when they were alone on the ship in the fog, they took the Confederate ship out of port and put up a Confederate flag and a flag of South Carolina. So they appeared like a Confederate ship and they acted like they were just a regular ship going about sort of on their rounds. And he knew the sort of secret code, what to toot on the horn that would let other Confederate ships know that it was a Confederate ship and let them by. And they eventually find Union ships. So this is during the Civil War and the Union ships come to ram them. The Union ships are going to ram into their boat to try to sink them. And they yell from the side of it, get their attention, and basically are saved by the Union. They're freed from slavery. By stealing his master's boat, this enslaved man, age 23, escaped from slavery with his family by committing a mutiny. Wow, that's amazing. That's such a good story. He ended up living to an old age and being free for the rest of his life. He actually let his master's wife move into one of his properties in her old age. Like the nicest guy in the world. Okay, I got one. I got one. So it's 1968 and tensions between North and South Korea are high. North Korea had just attempted to assassinate the president of South Korea. And so the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, their major intelligence agency in South Korea, formed a black ops crew called Unit 684 in order to assassinate the North Korean leader, Kim Il-sung. So what they did is they recruited 31 petty criminals and unemployed youths and put them through like three years of intense physical training. Like they're trying to turn these 31 criminals and youths into assassins that can take down Kim Il-sung. The training's so intense that seven of them die during it, during this three-year-long training period. But the other thing that happens during these three years is that relations between the two countries start to improve, and so the assassination plan is abandoned. And at that point, the 24 members who are still alive of this crew, after all that training, kind of freak out, and they kill 
all but six of their guards, head to shore, and hijack a bus to head to Seoul. They don't actually make it very far, though. The bus gets stopped by the army. There's a fight. 20 of the 24 members are either shot or commit suicide right then and there uh, by hand grenade. And then the four remaining members are captured, sentenced to death by military tribunal, executed, and then all information about this event is like completely covered up and hidden from the public for 34 years until like this movie comes out in 2003 called Silmido and an official report on the mutiny by the government a few years later. Gonna have to head to the tent soon and, and catch some shut-eye, but yeah. I think I got one last mutiny story in me, one last little historical mutiny, and it's a doozy. Nice. Let's hear it. I can't wait. So have you ever seen the film The Hunt for Red October? It's a, based on a Tom Clancy book. It came out like 1990. Ooh. I think I fell asleep to it once. So it basically in The Hunt for Red October, Tom Clancy says this is based on a true story. There was this guy, Valery Sablin. He's a Soviet naval officer who hijacked a submarine to leave the Soviet Union. And in the book version, it turns out that the mutineering Soviet officer wanted to defect to America because they hated communism so much. The real story that's based on, which happened in 1975, is a little more interesting. Valerie Sablin was not pro-America. He wasn't against communism. Him and his crew mutinied because they were anti-Stalinists who wanted to restore Leninist ideals of directly democratic Soviets. He felt that there was privilege and inequality and corruption in Soviet Russia, and these things went against the communist ethos, and his best chance to make a difference was to inspire a new cultural revolution which could bring a new wave of revolutionary movements and complete the revolution of 1917 to achieve a path towards communism. And he was a naval officer, he's about 30 years old. And part of his job is to teach his personnel about Marxism-Leninism, the Stalinist official ideology of the Soviet Union. Instead of using like regular sort of lesson guides there, he used this as an opportunity to build connections with his staff and radicalize them against Soviet bureaucracy. So he'd tell them tales about like the October Revolution, the revolutionary period, and try to stoke their desires to improve the USSR and bring about real socialism. He should have taught them about the Potemkin. Well, he almost certainly did. Actually, I'd say 110% he did, because we know that after their plan struck into action, one of the things that they did was they locked a non-sympathetic officer in a room to force him to watch the battleship Potemkin movie that was made in 1925. Wow. So after taking control of the ship and, and heading on the way to their destination, he attempted to broadcast a message to the people of Russia. He asked the radio operator to send his message to the people all across Russia to a radio channel that can be heard by all. But what they ended up doing was they ended up encrypting the message in such a way that only his commanding officers could hear his message. But this is what he tried to say to the Russian people. He tried to say, I address myself to those of you who take our revolutionary past to their hearts, to those who can think critically but not cynically about our present and about the future of our people. Ours is a purely political act. The real traitors to the motherland will be those who attempt to stop us. In the event of a military attack on our country, we will defend it loyally. But now we have another aim, to raise the voice of truth. Because this just went to his commanding officers and not the people of Russia, they intercepted the submarine. They broadcast the message to them, promising that if they turned in the guy leading it, that they would pardon people. They resisted that, but in the end, they were captured. And when they were captured, ultimately, our friend Valerie Sablin, the directly democratic communist and advocate for Leninism, and worldwide global revolution to communism was executed by firing squad for betraying the motherland by the so-called Soviet Union. In the name of communism, the communist was murdered. Valery, before his death, was able to write a letter to his son where he said the following, 
Trust the fact that history will judge events honestly, and you will never have to be embarrassed for what your father did. On no account ever be one of those people who criticize but do not follow through in their actions. Such people are hypocrites, weak, worthless people who do not have the power to reconcile their beliefs with their actions. I wish you courage, my dear. Be strong in the belief that life is wonderful. Be positive and believe the revolution will always win. Wow, those are inspiring words. He was ultimately buried in an unmarked grave. To this day, no one knows where he's buried. Ooh, less inspiring. Well, often the conditions that lead to a mutiny are pretty unbearably evil. One thing that really hit home about what he was saying was acting in accordance with your beliefs. And I believe that I am beat. I'm just so tired right now, so I gotta hit the hay. I do believe, good sir, I'm gonna be going to bed now, so allow me to seize this confederate ship and use the special code to get to my bedtime. Bed sleepy tent. I don't know, is that okay to say it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just gonna put off seizing anything else till tomorrow morning at least. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the only thing I'm gonna be seizing is the day tomorrow by starting bright and early. So I'm gonna get a little shut-eye. Yeah, hey, let's pour some water on the fire here. Let's make sure it's fully out. Give it a little stir, and then we're gonna put water on it again because that could spread while we sleep, and only we can prevent it. And I'd say that's prevented. That's probably still gonna be wet in the morning when we try to make a fire, but that's okay. Better safe than sorry. Night. Is there any other last thoughts on mutinies? Um, just, I don't know about, you know, I know you are utopians and I am as well, but at the same time, I am generally very pessimistic on a political level about what is possible and especially the moment that we're in. But I do think that often we don't give ourselves credit as a general population, as a working class on where we are now. And I really think that when you compare the situation we're in now, which seems in many ways like really dark, really terrible times, and in a lot of ways they are, I think in other ways, it really helps to look at where we've come from and what things were like before and that things really have changed. And that while I'm generally very pessimistic, I think that ultimately those staying in power, if they want to do so forever, they have to rely on the fact that large numbers of us are going to be prepared to die and kill people who maybe have a different language to us or look slightly different to us on a mass scale. And in the past, they've always been able to rely on that. But these struggles that have gone before have shown that we have more in common amongst ourselves than we do with them. And I think that that is not something that they'll always be able to rely on. So I think, you know, that is something we can sort of give ourselves as a positive. No, it's an amazing point that I think it is one of the good sides of the telecommunications networks that it is a lot easier than before to see the things that we have in common. We've used the term before access to ideology, which is like how the internet sort of allows you to look at things comparatively. And that free access to comparative ideology is something that's like very sort of new in history. Like people were often sort of given either one or two things to sort of choose between. The internet, in a sense, allows us, despite all of its, I think, shortcomings and issues towards human emancipation and liberty, like surveillance and et cetera, it allows us to take a step back in a way and see a larger scope of things more easily and in a less controlled way. Like I think there is a good side to it there in the current moment that we're in. And with stuff like international music and international movies and television where people watch subtitled or dubbed things and have connections to cultures that are regionally far away from them. The degree of like sort of interdependence in a cultural sense right now is also sort of a modern historical thing that we're experiencing. I think it is worth reflecting on and celebrating 
the progress we've made along those lanes. Because I think you're right to say it's harder than ever to make people be willing to kill each other in mass numbers just because they look slightly different or speak a different language. People can still pull it off, and it's definitely going to be a potentiality that sticks with us, I think, for a long time. But on that scale, I think we can sort of look at the countercultural movement in Vietnam even as a turning point in history around that kind of stuff. And it's interesting to imagine how that might interconnect with like, this is getting pretty off topic, but the proliferation of LSD and like psychedelic music and imagery and this like countercultural stuff, mingling with the political stuff, letting your hair grow out stuff. We could look at it as this pivot point where the hippies won in a way. I really love that idea. Not to say that there isn't despicable, horrible things going on now, which exceed even our wildest dreams, which is also probably true. Well, this has been an awesome discussion. I feel like I've had my mind blown more than once when conceiving some of the interplay between conceptions of worker organizing and military organizing to some of these specific historical incidents. And just generally, when you look up like the history of mutinies, the type of mutiny that people record are all just these fantastical events where just this startling thing happens and things are thrown on their head. And it's so dramatic and like Every individual mutiny that I learned about during the course of this episode is this mind-blowing spectacle of high drama. It's just a fascinating, fascinating subject. So I really appreciate you taking your time to share some of your insight on that subject from your experience with interviewing these people and other sources. It was it was really an awesome interview, I thought. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was fun talking to you all as well. And yeah, you could talk about literally any one of these things for a whole episode. So I haven't rambled too much on about anything in particular. No, it's great. We love listening to it. Yeah, I think and the stack goes deeper. Like for people who are <laughs> listening, we have barely scratch the surface of what mutinies are like and these examples of them. Are, it's just, yeah, fascinating stuff. So John, for the Working Class History Podcast, where can people find that to check it out? Yeah, so WCH is on all major podcast apps. Just look for Working Class History and Patreon. Our website is workingclasshistory.com and we've got accounts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, just all called Working Class History that you can check out. And if you're listening to this on the Working Class History feed, you can check us out at seriouslywrong.com. It's S-R-S-L-Y-W-R-O-N-G.com. We're also on Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, and so on as well. So yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show this week and doing this collab with us. This was like really, really cool. Mutinies are not just fascinating, but really mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, all good fun. Also, thank you guys so much for doing it as well. I appreciate you speaking with me and obviously doing the great work on the podcast generally. But yeah, it's been great doing this. Hopefully people like it. And if you do like the Working Class History podcast, definitely check out Seriously Wrong and hit the subscribe button. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Back to you as well. Yeah, definitely check out Working Class History and especially the episodes that we linked. If you want to learn more about what we talked about today, I am extremely interested to hear this living mutineer story. Next time on Seriously Wrong. Whew, what a interesting topic. Great work. Yeah, I'm so glad that we overthrew and mutinied against those other guys who wanted to make the Queen podcast or whatever. This was so much better. And that's that. It is what it is. This is the new normal. I'm comfortable here. Yeah, I think we're going to be making a lot of podcasts 
with us as the head of this ship. And get uh, him! Hey folks, I am your new host. We're your new hosts from the rival show, Mirthfully Correct. So we have taken out Sean and Aaron. That last episode was horrible. We need a show that is correct and has, you know, a bit more style and seriousness. Is there something mirthful about so-called fragging of one's superior officers? Please. That's a disturbing reversal of hierarchical norms and also basic decency. Yeah, and what is mirthful about communism, which has killed billions of people, if you count their descendants? And if you count coronavirus deaths, which I do. Oh, of course. China, communism. That's mirthfully correct. And actually, the death toll of Communism Foundation or whatever includes coronavirus deaths as well, I think. That's how you know it's mirthfully correct to do so. Get him! Hey, whoa! (laughs) Not to me! Hello, everybody. It's been tumultuous, but your new leaders are here from the Xenon Group and couldn't be happier. We're happy to announce that Xenon Corporation worldwide is going to be instituting a new era of consumer peace, where you can go to the store and freely buy what you need without worrying about something like a mutiny, a revolt, uprising. How do they do it, you ask? We stop the thoughts at the source. For all those things, mutinies, it's done. And this was the founding vision of our founder, Arthur Zenon, who said, you must stop the thoughts at the source. So we take that founding document extremely seriously at Zenon Corporation Group Unlimited. Get him! Ah, hey, no, oh. hey! hey. <clears throat> take this pill, stop it this no! Hi, we're with the Zenon Group, Arthur Zenon Thought. We are the real, true Zenonists here. We're not misguided like the Finkasites we just overthrew. We have clear eyes and correct ideas on the implementation of the full vision of Arthur Xenon, which we are happy to now do at the end of this series of mutinies. Arthur Xenon did not say to stop the thoughts at the source. He said, stop the thoughts only when absolutely necessary to maintain peace. Okay, that's a big difference. But they've changed his quotes. They're trying to change history. But we got the real stuff. Yes, we won't let these Finkasite dogs launder the reputation of our dear Arthur Xenon. What we're supposed to have is one big corporation that gives very, very good benefits to everyone, where you're paid very well by the hour and don't have to do very much work. And they've just absolutely never delivered on this perfectly corporate utopian vision. Hey, no, we are the final <laughs> mutiny. <laughs> Hey, everybody. So that was the last mutiny. Rest assured. Just to clear something up, we are the real Finkasists. To associate Finkas with anyone from Xenon Group is just wrong. It's simply a different Finkas. We're big fans of the singer, songwriter, and philosopher Geet Finkas, who is named himself after the fifth president, Geet Finkas. But the Finkasites they're talking about is actually not Geet Finkus, but Gert Finkus, who was a thinker in the Xenon group who is actually quite mainstream now. And uh, But the, we're not about that. We're about Geet Finkus, philosopher, singer-songwriter. Yeah, Gert Finkus, I don't even think was a real Finkus. I think that he took the Finkus name. I don't want to get into all this. This is my little theory. But rest assured, now that Finkus fans are in charge, The words and music and prose of Finkus will lift the spirits of all on board to a new height. It's going to be so exciting. Do they have the Finkus music queued up? Get him! Hey, no! No! Ah. All our Finkus records! Hello, um, I'm with Finkus Fink, and I'm the real Finkus... Get him! 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hi, everybody. So we are from the yeah. gnomes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey there, we're just, we're going to be the new. Hey, no. Now this process happening before our eyes, it's sort of a subterranean movement in history, which humanity conflicts with all systems of authority. It's not a movement that's ever been encompassed by a single ideology or body of sacred texts. It's a libidinal movement of humanity against coercion of any form, reaching back in time to the very emergence of property, society, class rule, and the state. And this force, this libidinal force of humanity is being used for unfathomable purposes beyond human comprehension. Does your Glock score ever struggle to provide enough power to your domicile node? Yes. Is gravitational energy satellites out of your family's price range? Yes. Are brownouts causing your hyperdimensional teleportation platform to leave you worrying for the safety of your family's extremities? Yes. Well then, do we have a product for you? It's called the GX50 Human Revolution Home Energy Unit. It's a renewable source of power that will give your house or vehicle its own little energy web. Now that's something that you can write to the Slim Slim about. This amazing orb reaches down from the eighth dimension where we currently are, down, down, down into the third dimension, shooting revolutionary fervor into those three-dimensional little creatures and then sucks up the power of the battles and tensions that exist. For a long time, it's been theorized that the human revolutionary spirit may be renewable and untapped. But what we found out in our labs is we need to turn up the heat, making them as revolutionary as possible right now to power your home. Now, some critics have said, oh, this is unethical. Those third dimensional beings have feelings and we shouldn't stoke the flames of their revolutionary spirit to power our luxuries. And to them we say, shut it. These three-dimensional beings are basically not conscious. They're like pieces of paper or garbage. Yeah, you tried descending down into the third dimension for a lifetime and come back and tell me that that experience was something you'd even call feeling or consciousness. Like if one of them was listening to us, I would say you're an ant to us. Yeah, I guess to a, a single dimensional, it's like you were like a point in space to us. Yeah, but that's only two dimensions down from them, whereas they're five dimensions down from us. Because so like, we're on the 8th dimension. Not even. Yeah. It's like you are less than a single point in space. You are somehow less than that proportion. Yeah, no. it's perfectly yeah, ethical. ethical to use them. It's just like using water to power something or something. Oh, are we impressing the steam in our kettle? Well, no. Great point. And great price point, too, that this is available at the uh, online store. Hello, I'm Starchild555. I am a human rights activist. I myself am not human on eight dimensions above. This is my co-conspirator. Yeah, my name is Larry. That's not my birth name. I took one of their names to be closer to them. We're really passionate about this. It's a good way to understand their mysterious ways. Yeah, we think, unlike them, there's a lot to learn you know, from We might be like the godlike multidimensional monstrosities to them, but I like to think we learn from them. And these humans have rights. They have a right to be as revolutionary or as not revolutionary as they so please. And they certainly have a right to not be used as a form of oppressive energy to power our absurd eight-dimensional consumer society. 
That is beyond the pale. We know that humans experience one hundredth of what we would consider the feeling of sadness. Yeah, and that's true of all their emotions, and that's why we aren't giving them this station until all the humans are freed. We're going to keep broadcasting 24 blessures a cycle until our demands are met. Will the human rights activists have their demands met? Will the GX50 Human Revolution Home Energy Unit do a recall? Can humanity finally be freed from their oppressive revolutionary spirit? Tune in next time to Seriously Wrong to find out.